Cross, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Welcome all to a brand new quantcast from Mauro Cesar and Nasneen Sharif. Hi, Nasneen. Hi, everyone. In this quantcast, we talk about runway risk. So, runway risk is defined by ISDA as the risk that occurs when exposure to a counterparty is adversely correlated with the credit quality of that counterparty. In other words, runway risk materializes when, as the credit worthiness of a counterparty deteriorates, the credit exposure to that counterparty increases. We talk today with our two guests that are connected remotely via phone. Uh, one is connected from very remotely, and uh, he's Bill Chung, who is uh, based in Tokyo and is the senior, a senior quant analyst at IHS Market. Uh, hi, Bill. How are you? I'm good. And then we have John Gregory, who is uh, also with us. John is well known to Risk.net readers for his numerous contributions to quant finance. In risk, he published a number of research papers and is often interviewed with regards to credit derivatives, credit risk, XVAs, and ev everything that is relevant to that universe. Hi, John. Great to have you here. Hello. Uh, how are you? We are good. We are good. So uh, I'll suggest we start off by um, explaining why this issue is important. Um, so why is it important to model CVA runway risk correctly and calculate it precisely? Well, I think I'll, um, I'll take that one to start with. So um, to some extent, it's not um, been necessarily the most important thing for people to focus on within the world of CVA and more generally within the world of XVA. One of the reasons for that is that CVA is only realized as a loss um, if a default actually occurs. Other than that, it would only be an accounting uh, loss. And so there is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, if you don't model wrongway risk, you may never discover that there is there is a problem. Um, having said that, uh, there are uh, even in in the event there are no defaults, um, sort of practical implications of not looking at runway risk, such as what uh, a CVA desk may refer to as a negative gamma or a cross gamma, uh, where they may lose money because of uh, large moves in underlying variables. But um, in the past, uh, as I said, that's not always been top of the list um, in terms of uh, the, the things people would look at within the world of CVA and XVA with other things being more important. Going forward, um, the FOBTB requirements for CVA, which are currently due to be implemented um, in 2022, um, do specify that um, a bank must explicitly account for dependence between exposure and counterparty credit quality in its CVA calculation. And if that's not done, they would fa be facing an increased multiplier within the capital formula. So that's really the first time where there's a very explicit um, requirement to either model wrongway risk or face a higher capital charge due to not modeling wrongway risk. So why does wrongway risk often get misspecified? Um, you know, why, why would historical calibration uh, not do a good job estimating it? Well, runway risk is generally, uh, as I say, uh, an implication that uh, in a default or in an adverse credit situation, then the exposure has moved in a very um, adverse way. Um, so when we look at historical data, then we generally observe data when there haven't been defaults. So we're looking at um, using often unconditional data to tell us what might happen conditionally. Um, added to that, 
or related to that, we know that correlation, which we generally use to look at the dependence between um, different macroeconomic variables and, and risk factors, um, is not the only way to look at that dependence and, and may not fully capture that dependence and, and may indeed be unstable. So uh, often we're in the situation where empirical data doesn't really reveal wrong-way risk relationships because that data doesn't necessarily contain the sort of effect that may be adverse, such as a default or an adverse credit um, situation. Um, and so effectively the empirical data doesn't show up causalities and so on. So in the, the recent paper that um, both of you have um, written together, uh, you're using um, Quanto CDS to um, extract some kind of information that would help you model wrong risk better. Um, what kind of information is that, and you know, what kind of model are you proposing to um, you know price wrong risk? Yeah, uh, I think I will take that one. So, um, I mean, as John just mentioned, uh, the regulation, for example, SACVA uh, on basically FLTBCVA, that has been requiring banks to use market impact information to compute their CVA number. For example, banks are required to use uh, market impact PD from CDS spread, and they have to calibrate their simulation model to option data, their risk better model to option data. So I think it's a uh, very natural question to ask if we can do similar impact calibration for one-way risk modeling. And we find that this kind of information is readily available in the quantum CDS market. And if we use the quantum basis to imply the correlation between uh, FX movement and counterparty default, and this is something that we can use for one-way risk calculation. So what are the advantages of using this technique for uh, a portfolio that is sensitive to FX movements? And in practice, I think we have seen a lot of jumps and volatilities in, in particular for the uh, emerging market currencies, such as the case for uh, South Africa, Mexico, South Korea in the distant past. And more recently, we also see a lot of jumps in, for example, like China, Argentina, Turkey recently. And I think it's a really a recurring theme in terms of the management of a epic sensitive portfolio. And these epic jumps can have a very huge impact to the bank counterparty risk management, and the resulting change in exposure, counterparty exposure, can be quite difficult to manage. And I, I, I think that for using like conventional risk management model, which relies on uh, diffusion dynamics or correlation, they kind of fail to capture these kind of jumps in the risk better. So I think uh, it's a reasonable way to think about what we call in the paper a jump to default model and also calibrate this kind of model to quantum CDS data to really be flat that kind of jump events in uh, CVA calculation and other risk measure calculations. I think one thing to add there as well is that um, in this situation we also have the potential to hedge runway risk. So. Um, there may be many situations when you feel that you may be exposed to a sort of jump style effect due to wrong way risk. Um, but whilst you may think that that may lead to a different price or valuation, um, it, it may it still may be unhedgeable risk. Um, in, in this situation, not only are we able to sort of effectively calibrate to um, to get the wrong way risk effect, but also there is an underlying hedge. So a bank could, in theory, be hedged for the FX wrong way risk as well, 
uh, admittedly that the underlying market is not particularly liquid for that. So, you know, you mentioned the market isn't particularly liquid for that. So why did you choose the Japanese CDS market for, for this paper? You know, because um, it's um, less liquid compared to other markets. So would that impact the study in any way? Uh, I would probably say that um, the one of the reasons that why we choose the Japan universe is that uh, we do see a reasonable number of CDS predictive swap denominator in both U.S. dollar and Japanese yen uh, for a wide range of Japanese companies. And this is due to the fact that many Japanese companies, they issue local bonds, and some of them, they also issue like uh, foreign bonds. And indeed, many Japanese names, they have their primary uh, CDS curve, uh, the most liquid curve trading in uh, domestic currency, Japanese name. And this is probably not something that uh, we can find for other countries. And in particular, if you go to some other emerging market currency, it's difficult to find CDS denominator in both uh, foreign and local currencies. And so for the case for Japan, we do have a very good amount of uh, samples to uh, do our analysis. But more importantly, uh, also one of the points that uh, John has just mentioned is that we want to illustrate the importance of impi uh, calibration. And if you look at the historical time series, of Japanese CDS spread against, for example, the dollar-yen exchange rate, you will actually find a very interesting pattern that the CDS spread usually increase when Japanese yen is drawn against the U.S. dollar. And this kind of reflects the case of right rate risk instead of wrong rate risk. And this is exactly the case that where historical data doesn't really reflect uh, what we are trying to capture in terms of wrong rate risk modeling. And this is also contradictory to what we have seen in the quanto CDS market, in which the quanto basis for most of the Japanese name has been implying a uh, Japanese yen depreciation upon a corporate default. So there are several, I mean, this, there's several different reasons that I think the Japanese CDS market is one of the best examples to illustrate the contra contradiction between historical uh, calibration and implied calibration in particular from the perspective of formal risk modeling. Yeah, and that goes back to what I said earlier about unconditional and conditional, in that when we look at, say, um, historical correlations between, say, dollar-yen and CDS spreads, what we see is a sort of unconditional relationship that tells us that actually Japanese firms do relatively well when, when the yen is weaker. Um, but to fully extrapolate that, and that's the right way risk that Bill was just mentioning, but to extrapolate that to the fact that that means that when a Japanese firm defaults, then the yen must be very strong is, is obviously incorrect. Um, and, and there is essentially a causality in that situation. So what we have is a sort of um, historical correlation suggests there is a right way risk, but in fact, not only is the magnitude of that wrong, but the sign of that is wrong, because in reality, a default would, would be a wrong way risk, which is what we see in the CDS data. Interesting. So how are systemically important counterparties impacted by wrong way risk in, in your study? Have you explored that? Well, I think one very interesting thing about this, and one thing that's, which is important about wrong way risk, is that um, to some extent, the, the better the credit quality of the counterparty, um, certainly from a modeling perspective, any model will tell you that the, higher, the better the credit quality of the counterparty, the more wrong way risk you have. 
uh, and that's simply because uh, the better the credit quality, the more unlikely the default, and, and therefore if you're in that regime, uh, that very more unlikely regime, then the effect is, is naturally going to be stronger. In, in real terms, we'd probably not talk about necessarily the, the credit quality of the counterparty, but talk about the, the size of the counterparty and whether it's systemically important. And so another interesting facet to this, this study is you, you can look across different types of counterparty. So you can look first at the sovereign, and then next you would probably tend, to, obviously, to look at the large banks, the mega banks in Japan, uh, and then the smaller banks, uh, and then finally there are obviously some Japanese corporates where we can observe the CDS spread. And you see that this effect uh, sh shows r roughly what you would expect in that um, the wrong way risk is, is biggest in terms of the currency if you're transacting with a sovereign, and then after that it's the mega banks, and then and then the smaller banks, and then and then corporate. So we see that the, the magnitude of the effect is is as would be expected, and and obviously that suggests that in practice you should very if the data is not available, you should be very much considering the nature of the counterparty in terms of how systemically important they are, in terms of how large they are, and their underlying credit quality, in terms of understanding the magnitude of the wrong way risk you have, and perversely. Uh, the, the higher credit quality and the, the better the counterparty and so on, probably the more wrong way risk you have and, and the weaker the credit and, and the smaller the counterparty, maybe the less wrong way risk you have. John, you've been working on uh, wrong way risk for a long time, and well, both of you really, but um, working on this research in particular, um, what did you learn about the mechanism behind a wrong way risk? Uh, anything new that you haven't noticed before? Um, for me, it's... Um, it's it's not so much anything new. It's um, a lot of things that um, sort of have been in my head from a sort of theoretical perspective. I think about it over many years. We're finally able to sort of see um, actually happening empirically with with real market data and and historical data. Um, so, I mean. This is not related to the paper, but more of, you know, having a forward-looking view. Um, so over the next, you know, one to two years, what new topics will uh, the two of you be uh, researching? Um, from my point of view, yeah. there's a couple of things that spring to mind. Um, firstly, one thing which I think is connected to runway risk, which which risk has um, focused on with, with technical articles and and um, stories um, relatively recently is CCPs. Um, so CCPs, to some extent, you can think of that as being a sort of ultimate runway risk in some sense. Um, and, and even regulation um, sort of admits that by, if you look at the capital charges on CCP default funds, uh, they're very large. Um, and I think one of the arguments as to why they're very large is that I don't think it's phrased like this, but, um, but there's essentially a runway risk there that a CCP default fund would only get hit in a very adverse market scenario. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is that um, under FRTB, as we mentioned earlier, with this requirement to potentially model runway risk, more generally the question is what is the standard for CVA modeling that will be required under FRTB for banks who want to have the advanced regulatory approval. Um, I don't think we, there is really a standard at the moment. There are a number of different approaches, and you see quite a divergence in um, models and calibration and, and so on. And so I think there will be some sort of a standard that will have to emerge to, to get regulators comfortable with 
bank being able to give the more advanced regulatory approval under FRTB for essentially using their accounting CVA calculation to generate regulatory capital numbers. And Bill, how about yourself? Do you have actually, uh, the two of you, do you have any projects uh, upcoming? For myself and I mean also within IXS Market, uh, we have been looking a few uh, interesting research topics uh, in terms of how we can build better kind of party risk management using uh, different kinds of data science or machine learning tools. And we have been talking about how we can uh, build a early warning system by integrating different kinds of traditional structured data uh, to more uh, non-traditional unstructured data and moving towards a more proactive approach of uh, counterparty risk management. And I think this also links to the case for uh, one-way risk modeling. If you look at the regulatory requirement for one-way risk modeling, and actually, I mean, in, instead of computing the one-way risk, uh, the monitoring of one-way risk is actually quite important. And I think uh, using different kind of data source from uh, alternative data to non-traditional data, uh, we hope that we can find some interesting uh, research topic uh, on this regard. Excellent. Looking forward to that. Um, well, thank you both very much for uh, for your answers. Very uh, interesting indeed. Uh, your paper, CVA Runway Risk Calibration Using Quantus CDS Basis, is online on RISTA.net and uh, will appear in the J July issue of RISC. And, uh, well, I just want to thank you for, um, for joining us today. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening.